Book six, chapter thirty, part two of On War, volumes two and three by Karl von Clausewitz. Translated by J. J. Graham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson. Defence of a theatre of war continued. We believe we have now gone through all subjects which form the predominant ideas, the principal aims, and therefore the main stay of the whole action in the defence of a theatre of war when no idea of decision is entertained. Our chief, indeed, sole object in bringing them all close together was to let the organism of the whole strategic action be seen in one view. The particular measures by which those subjects come to life, marches, positions, etc., etc., we have already considered in detail. By now casting a glance once more at the whole of our subject, the idea must strike us forcibly that, with such a weak offensive principle, with so little desire for a decision on either side, with so little positive motive, with so many counteracting influences of a subjective nature which stop us and hold us back, the essential difference between attack and defence must always tend more to disappear. At the opening of a campaign, certainly one party will enter the other's theatre of war, and in that manner, to a certain extent, such party puts on the form of offensive. But it may very well take place, and happens frequently, that he must soon enough apply all his powers to defend his own country on the enemy's territory. Then both stand, in reality, opposite one another in a state of mutual observation. Both intent on losing nothing, perhaps both alike intent also, on obtaining a positive advantage. Indeed, it may happen, as with Frederick the Great, that the real defender aims higher in that way than his adversary. Now, the more the assailant gives up the position of an enemy making progress, the less the defender is menaced by him, and confined to a strictly defensive attitude by the pressing claims of a regard for mere safety. So much the more a similarity in relations of the parties is produced, in which then the activity of both will be directed towards gaining an advantage over his opponent, and protecting himself against any disadvantage, therefore to a true strategic manoeuvring, and indeed this is the character into which all campaigns resolve themselves more or less, where the situation of the combatants or political views do not allow of any great decision. In the following book we have allotted a chapter specially to the subject of strategic manoeuvres, but as this equipoised play of forces has frequently been invested in theory with an importance to which it is not entitled, we find ourselves under the necessity of examining the subject more closely while we are treating of the defence, as it is in that form of warfare more particularly that this false importance is ascribed to strategic manoeuvres. We call it an equipoised play of forces, for when there is no movement of the whole body there is a state of equilibrium, where no great object impels, there is no movement of the whole. Therefore, in such a case, the two parties, however unequal they may be, are still to be regarded as in a state of equilibrium. From this state of equilibrium of the whole now come forth the particular motives to actions of a minor class and secondary objects. They can here develop themselves, because they are no longer kept down by the pressure of a great decision and a great danger. Therefore, what can be lost or won upon the whole is changed into small counters, and the action of the war as a whole is broken up into smaller transactions. With these smaller operations for smaller gains, a contest of skill now takes place between the two generals. But as it is impossible in war to shut out chance, and consequently good luck, therefore this contest will never be otherwise than a game. In the meantime, here arise two other questions. 
that is, whether in this manoeuvring chance will not have a smaller, and superior intelligence a greater, share in the decision, than where all concentrates itself into a single great act. The last of these questions we must answer in the affirmative. The more complete the organisation of the whole, the oftener time and space come into consideration, the former by single moments, and the latter at particular points. So much the greater plainly will be the field for calculation. Therefore, the greater the sway exercised by superior intelligence. What the superior understanding gains is abstracted in part from chance, but not necessarily altogether, and therefore we are not obliged to answer the first question affirmatively. Moreover, we must not forget that a superior understanding is not the only mental quality of a general. Courage, energy, resolution, presence of mind, etc., are qualities which rise again to a higher value when all depends on a single great decision. They will therefore have somewhat less weight when there is an equipoised play of forces, and the predominating ascendancy of sagacious calculation increases not only at the expense of chance, but also at the expense of these qualities. On the other hand, these brilliant qualities, at the moment of a great decision, may rob chance of a great part of its power, and therefore, to a certain extent, secure that which calculating intelligence in such cases would be obliged to leave to chance. We see by this that here a conflict takes place between several forces, and that we cannot positively assert that there is a greater field left open to chance in the case of a great decision than in the total result when that equipoised play of forces takes place. If we therefore see more particularly in this play of forces a contest of mutual skill, that must only be taken to refer to skill in sagacious calculation, and not to the sum total of military genius. Now, it is just from this aspect of strategic manoeuvring that the whole has obtained that false importance of which we have spoken above. In the first place, in this skilfulness, the whole genius of a general has been supposed to consist. But this is a great mistake. For it is, as already said, not to be denied that in moments of great decisions other moral qualities of a general may have a power to control the force of events. If this power proceeds more from the impulse of noble feelings, and those sparks of genius which start up almost unconsciously, and therefore does not proceed from long chains of thought, still it is not the less a free citizen of the art of war, for that art is neither a mere act of understanding, nor are the activities of the intellectual faculties its principal ones. Further, it has been supposed that every active campaign without results must be owing to that sort of skill on the part of one or even of both generals, while, in reality, it has always had its general and principal foundation just in the general relations which have turned war into such a game. As most wars between civilised states have had for their object rather the observation of the enemy than his destruction, Therefore, it was only natural that the greater number of the campaigns should bear the character of strategic manoeuvring. Those amongst them which did not bring into notice any renowned generals attracted no attention. But where there was a great commander, on whom all eyes were fixed, or to oppose to each other, like Turenne and Montecuculli, there the seal of perfection has been stamped upon this whole art of manoeuvring through the names of these generals. A further consequence has been that this game has been looked upon as the summit of the art, as the manifestation of its highest perfection, and consequently also as the source at which the art of war must chiefly be studied. This view prevailed almost universally in the theoretical world before the wars of the French Revolution, but when these wars at one stroke opened to view a quite different world of phenomena in war, 
at first somewhat rough and wild, but which afterwards, under Bonaparte, systematised into a method on a grand scale, produced results which created astonishment amongst old and young, then people set themselves free from the old models, and believed that all the changes they saw resulted from modern discoveries, magnificent ideas, etc., but also at the same time certainly from the changes in the state of society. It was now thought that what was old would never more be required, and would never even reappear. But as in such revolutions in opinions two parties are always formed, so it was also in this instance, and the old views found their champions, who looked upon the new phenomena as rude blows of brute force, as a general decadence of the art, and held the opinion that in the evenly balanced, nuggetary, fruitless war game, the perfection of the art is realised. There lies at the bottom of this last view such a want of logic and philosophy that it can only be termed a hopeless, distressing confusion of ideas. But at the same time the opposite opinion, that nothing like the past will ever reappear, is very irrational. Of the novel appearances manifested in the domain of the art of war, very few indeed are to be ascribed to new discoveries, or to a change in the direction of ideas. They are chiefly attributable to the alterations in the social estate and its relations, but as these took place just at the crisis of a state of fermentation, they must not be taken as a norm, and we cannot therefore doubt that a great part of the former manifestations of war will again make their appearance. This is not the place to enter further into these matters. It is enough for us that by directing attention to the relation which this even-balanced play of forces occupies in the whole conduct of a war, and to its signification and connection with other objects, we have shown that it is always produced by constraint laid on both parties in the contest, and by a military element greatly attenuated. In this game, one general may show himself more skilful than his opponent, and therefore if the strength of his army is equal, he may also gain many advantages over him, or if his force is inferior, he may, by his superior talent, keep the contest evenly balanced. But it is completely contradictory to the nature of the thing to look here for the highest honour and glory of a general. Such a campaign is always, rather, a certain sign that neither of the generals has any great military talent, or that he who has talent is prevented by the force of circumstances from venturing on a great decision. But when this is the case, there is no scope afforded for the display of the highest military genius. We have hitherto been engaged with the general character of strategic manoeuvring. We must now proceed to a special influence which it has on the conduct of war, namely this, that it frequently leads the combatants away from the principal roads and places into unfrequented, or at least unimportant, localities. When trifling interests, which exist for a moment and then disappear, are paramount, the great features of a country have less influence on the conduct of the war. We therefore often find that bodies of troops move to points where we should never look for them, judging only by the great and simple requirements of the war, and that consequently also the changefulness and diversity in the details of the contest as it progresses are much greater here than in wars directed to a great decision. Let us only look how in the last five campaigns of the Seven Years' War, in spite of the relations in general remaining unchanged in themselves, each of these campaigns took a different form, and closely examined, no single measure ever appears twice, and yet in these campaigns the offensive principle manifests itself on the side of the Allied army much more decidedly than in most other earlier wars. 
in this chapter on the defence of a theatre of war if no great decision is proposed we have only shown the tendencies of the action together with its combination and the relations and character of the same the particular measures of which it is composed have been described in detail in a former part of our work now the question arises whether for these different tendencies of action no thoroughly general comprehensive principles rules or methods can be given to this we reply that as far as history is concerned we have decidedly not been led to any deductions of that kind through constantly recurring forms and at the same time for a subject so diversified and changeful in its general nature we could hardly admit any theoretical rule except one founded on experience a war directed to great decisions is not only much simpler but also much more in accordance with nature is more free from inconsistencies more objective more restricted by a law of inherent necessity hence the mind can prescribe forms and laws for it but a war without a decision for its object this appears to us to be much more difficult even the two fundamental principles of the earliest theories of strategy published in our times the breadth of the base in bulow and the position of interior lines in Germany, if applied to the defence of a theatre of war, have in no instance shown themselves absolute and effective. But being mere forms, this is just where they should show themselves most efficacious, because forms are always more efficacious, always acquire a preponderance over other factors of the product, the more the action extends over time and space. Notwithstanding this, we find that they are nothing more than particular parts of the subject, and certainly anything but decisive advantages it is very clear that the peculiar nature of the means and relations must always from the first have a great influence adverse to all general principles what down did by the extent and provident choice of positions the king did by keeping his army always concentrated always hugging the enemy close and by being always ready to act extemporarily with the whole army the method of each general proceeded not only from the nature of the army he commanded but also from the circumstances in which he was placed to extemporize movements is always much easier for a king than for any commander who acts under responsibility we shall here once more point out particularly that the critic has no right to look upon the different manners and methods which may make their appearance as different degrees on the road to perfection the one inferior to the other they are entitled to be treated as on an equality and it must rest with the judgment to estimate their relative fitness for use in each particular case to enumerate these different manners which may spring from the particular nature of an army of a country or of circumstances is not our object here the influence of these things generally we have already noticed we acknowledge therefore that in this chapter we are unable to give any maxims rules or methods because history does not furnish the means and on the contrary at almost every moment we there meet with peculiarities such as are often quite inexplicable and often also surprise us by their singularity but it is not on that account unprofitable to study history in connection with this subject also where neither system nor any dogmatic apparatus can be found there may still be truth and this truth will then in most cases only be discovered by a practised judgment and the tact of long experience therefore even if history does not here furnish any formula we may be certain that here as well as everywhere else it will give us exercise for the judgment we shall only set up one comprehensive general principle or rather we shall reproduce and present to view more vividly in the form of a separate principle the natural presupposition of all that has now been said
all the means which have here been set forth have only a relative value they are all placed under the legal ban of a certain disability on both sides above this region a higher law prevails and there is a totally different world of phenomena the general must never forget this he must never move in imaginary security within the narrower sphere as if he were in an absolute medium never look upon the means which he employs here as the necessary or as the only means and still adhere to them even when he himself already trembles at their insufficiency from the point of view at which we have placed ourselves such an error may appear to be almost impossible but it is not impossible in the real world because there are things which do not appear in such sharp contrast we must just again remind our readers that for the sake of giving clearness distinctness and force to our ideas we have always taken as the subject of our consideration only the complete antithesis that is the two extremes of the question but that the concrete case in war generally lies between these two extremes and is only influenced by either of these extremes according to the degree in which it approaches nearer towards it therefore quite commonly everything depends on the general making up his own mind before all other things as to whether his adversary has the inclination and the means of outbidding him by the use of greater and more decisive measures as soon as he has a reason to apprehend this he must give up small measures intended to ward off small disadvantages and the course which remains for him then is to put himself in a better situation by a voluntary sacrifice in order to make himself equal to a greater solution in other words the first requisite is that the general should take the right scale in laying out his work in order to give these ideas still more distinctiveness through the help of real experience we shall briefly notice a string of cases in which according to our opinion a false criterion was made use of that is in which one of the generals in the calculation of his operations very much underestimated the decisive action intended by his adversary we begin with the opening of the campaign of seventeen fifty seven in which the austrians showed by the disposition of their forces that they had not counted upon so thorough an offensive as that adopted by frederick the great even the delay of piccolomini's corps on the silesian frontier while duke charles of lorraine was in danger of having to surrender with his whole army is a similar case of complete misconception of the situation in seventeen fifty eight the french were in the first place completely taken in as to the effects of the convention of kloster seven open bracket a fact certainly with which we have nothing to do here close bracket and two months afterwards they were completely mistaken in their judgment of what their opponent might undertake which very shortly after cost them the country between the weser and the rhine that frederick the great in seventeen fifty nine at maxen and in seventeen sixty at lancet completely misjudged his enemies in not supposing them capable of such decisive measures has been already mentioned but in all history we can hardly find a greater error in the criterion than that in seventeen ninety two it was then imagined possible to turn the tide in a national war by a moderate-sized auxiliary army which brought down on those who attempted it the enormous weight of the whole french people at the time completely unhinged by political fanaticism we only call this error a great one because it has proved so since and not because it would have been easy to avoid it as far as regards the conduct of the war itself it cannot be denied that the foundation of all the disastrous years which followed was laid in the campaign of seventeen ninety four on the side of the allies in that campaign even the powerful nature of the enemy's system of attack was quite misunderstood by opposing to it a pitiful system of extended positions and strategic manoeuvres 
and further in the want of unanimity between prussia and austria politically and the foolish abandonment of belgium and the netherlands we may also see how little presentiment the cabinets of that day had of the force of the torrent which had just broken loose in the year seventeen ninety six the partial acts of resistance offered at montnot lodi etc etc show sufficiently how little the austrians understood the main point when confronted by a bonaparte in the year eighteen hundred it was not by the direct effect of surprise but by the false view which Mellis took of the possible consequences of this surprise that his catastrophe was brought about Ulm in the year eighteen o five was the last knot of a loose network of scientific but extremely feeble strategic combinations good enough to stop a down or a lacy but not a bonaparte the revolution's emperor the indecision and embarrassment of the prussians in eighteen o six proceeded from antiquated pitiful impracticable views and measures being mixed up with some lucid ideas and a true feeling of the immense importance of the moment if there had been a distinct consciousness and a complete appreciation of the position of the country how could they have left thirty thousand men in prussia and then entertained the idea of forming a special theatre of war in westphalia and of gaining any results from a trivial offensive such as that for which Ruchel's and the weimar corps were intended and how could they have talked of danger to magazines and loss of this or that strip of territory in the last moments left for deliberation even in eighteen twelve in the grandest of all campaigns there was no want at first of unsound purposes proceeding from the use of an erroneous standard scale in the headquarters at vilna there was a party of men of high mark who insisted on a battle on the frontier in order that no hostile foot should tread on russian ground with impunity that this battle on the frontier might be lost nay that it would be lost these men certainly admitted for although they did not know that there would be three hundred thousand french to meet eighty thousand russians still they knew that their enemy was considerably superior in numbers the chief error was in the value which they ascribed to this battle they thought it would be a lost battle like many other lost battles whereas it may with certainty be asserted that this great battle on the frontier would have produced a succession of events completely different to those which actually took place even the camp at drissa was a measure at the root of which there lay a completely erroneous standard with regard to the enemy if the russian army had been obliged to remain there they would have been completely isolated and cut off from every quarter and then the french army would not have been at a loss for means to compel the russians to lay down their arms the designer of that camp never thought of power and will on such a scale as that but even bonaparte sometimes used a false standard after the armistice of eighteen thirteen he thought to hold in check the subordinate armies of the allies under blucher and the crown prince of sweden by corps which were certainly not able to offer any effectual resistance but which might impose sufficiently on the cautious to prevent them from risking anything as had so often been done in preceding wars he did not reflect sufficiently on the reaction proceeding from the deep-rooted resentment with which both blucher and bulow were animated and from the imminent danger in which they were placed in general he underestimated the enterprising spirit of old blucher at Leipzig, Blücher alone wrested from him the victory. At Leon, Blücher might have entirely ruined him, and if he did not do so, the cause lay in circumstances completely out of the calculation of Bonaparte. Lastly, at Belle Alliance, the penalty of this mistake reached him like a thunderbolt.
End of Book Six, Chapter Thirty, Part Two. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.